Welcome back, dear lunchers, to the podcast that treats its guests to terrific food and its listeners to terrific conversation. Today, I'm joined by a comedian, actor and musician whose stand-up tours have had brilliantly inventive titles including Tinsel Worm, Quam Peddler and Limbo Land. His shows delight in the surreal and his mashups of musical genres and experimentation with instruments, well, it's always a total joy. He implanted himself deep in the public consciousness as Manny in the much-loved TV comedy Black Books and has appeared on numerous panel shows including as a team leader on Nevermind the Buzzcocks. He won Strictly in 2020 and with that became a national treasure. The Observer has named him one of the 50 funniest acts in British comedy and Channel 4 voted him one of the greatest stand-up comics ever. We chat about what it's like having a zoo in your back garden, what it's like working for Black Sabbath and what makes a foolproof Eurovision Song Contest winner. It is, of course, the utterly wondrous Bill Bailey. This will make you laugh, perhaps. I was asked to be the face of Visit Britain in 2020. <laughs> now, I've always thought of Bill Bailey as the kind of man you could imagine settling down over a pint in a pub with. So I thought I'd bring him to a pub, or to be more exact, a tavern. It's called the Wigmore. It is the tavern end of the Langham Hotel in the centre of London, and it belongs to the chef Michel Roux Jr., who's brought that kind of French classical cookery chops to the pub repertoire. In other words, they do a really good pie, they do a scotch egg, and they do the best cheese toasty in town. And we're going to have one. Let's get inside. Ah, hello. Hello, Bill. <laughs> How are you? I'm very well. Good to see very you. Very good to see you. Yeah. Come on in. Welcome Thanks to very the much. table. Oh, good Lord. This is nice, isn't it? We have in front of us uh, little What's crumpets this? with uh, crab. Good Lord. I know. Are they crumpets? Mm. They're not crumpets, are the, they? They're little homemade buttered crumpets. Oh, they look more like volleyball. Do they? Yeah. I think it's just the, the size. If you pick them up, you'll suddenly go, no, that's a crumpet. Oh, yes, yeah, you're right. It's got the texture and the solidity of a crumpet. So shove one of those in your mouth, and then I'll ask okay. you a question just as you've got it there. Mm. Still or sparkling water? Oh, still, please. When we were um, exchanging our messages about you doing this, mm. and I asked you your dietaries, you said that the only thing that you didn't really want to eat again was a, a fruit bat? Yeah. How did that happen? Well, the fruit bat came about, I was filming in Indonesia for a documentary about Alfred Wallace. He was a kind of, a, he was known as Darwin's shadow. He travelled all the way through Indonesia, what we now know as, thank you, as um, Malaysia and Borneo, Singapore and Indonesia. Throughout his travels, amongst other things, he discovered, you know, countless number of new species. He collected 120,000 specimens, which, which were all in the Natural History Museum. But he, independently of Darwin, discovered the theory of evolution. So I was fascinated by this character. I've been travelling in Indonesia quite a lot. So we went to a place in, in Sulawesi called Tankoko Forest, and uh, there's a lot of fruit bats there, and the locals eat them. And I was a bit kind of apprehensive about it, and he said, uh, I asked him, this, this chap who's like a ranger, park ranger, in the, and he'd obviously eaten a lot of these, and I said, I said, what does it taste like? And he thought for a minute, he goes, tastes like rat. <laughs> Terms said, of reference are important, aren't they, in I these said, questions? It's not really helping. Oh, and I went, oh, rat, oh, right, okay. Uh, do you want to have a look at this menu? Yes, go on then. One of the, the key things they do here is that triple cheese and mustard toasty. Can I suggest we get one for the table? Oh, yes, please. OK. And then have a look at the main. Mains, chicken and leek pie, 
cheeseburgers grilled. What do you have in and I'll have something well, different? Well, what I do is I, I pick two and then wait for you and see if you've chosen one of them and then I have the other one. <laughs> well, in that case then, I'll have the, um, I'll go with the pie and the cod. You're going to have two mates? No, I'm just saying that you Oh, said, I see. And I'm then I'm choosing have the two. cod. There you go. Brilliant. Yeah. And do you want to drink? Do you drink a lot of chamomile? Yeah, I do, yeah, absolutely. There is a list of wines. I may try the, um, Viognier Esprit. So one glass of Viognier and I'll have a glass of the Verdecchio. One glass of Viognier, Verdecchio. Any extra portion of fat chips without uh, Bloody Mary salts? Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. 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 On Monday this week, yes. as we're talking, yeah. you played a gig in South End. That's right. Which was sort of where it all began. Absolutely. Was it back at the same venue or was it a different it, venue? Well, actually, it is in the same building, but the venue itself was um, the Joker Comedy Club. So can you explain exactly what happened back in there? Would it have been the early 90s? It or? would have been, yeah. No, it was the early 90s. And what happened was I was in a double act called The Rubber Bishops, and there was me and a, a friend of mine from college, Martin, and the two of us, we did songs and sort of sketches and kind of quick-fire banter, and it was quite a sort of energetic, high-energy act. And I got a call from the Joker saying, oh, can you fill in? And I said, well, Martin, my partner, he's on holiday. So he said, oh, well, right. And he said, well, forget it then. So he phoned back and said, yeah, I can't get anyone. Would you do it on your own? So I said, all right, I'll give it a go. Anyway, went on stage and I was a bit nervous and I was just doing my half <laughs> of this double act. Were you leaving a pause when Martin <laughs> yeah. would normally give you his response well, or, normally, or feed you a line? He would feed me a line and I was in, I realised too late in the middle of the act, I couldn't remember what he said. <laughs> Wine is turning up. Oh, cheers. Santé. It was just a shambles. It was a guy before me and he had a guitar and he had a prop a strawberry sellotape to it, like a, a, he'd made himself. And he was doing some sort of hippie-ish act. Anyway, <laughs> he, was on, he was on not for very long and somebody shouted out, Oi, mate! What'd you come on stage with a stupid prop like that for? And he started to reply, and the heckler said, I was talking to the strawberry. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, that's the level that you're up against. I'd just seen that, seen this guy walk off in ignominy, and I thought, I don't know about this. I basically bailed in the middle of the act, because somebody shouted out, Oi, mate, tell us a joke. It is brutally honest, accurate, and deadly, if you haven't got a joke. <laughs> to fill time, I just said, three blokes going to a pub. And immediately, the audience, now I had their attention, because they thought, oh, yeah, she... This is the convention of a joke. Perhaps he has one. Perhaps he's got a joke. Perhaps this is a joke. So I just, I said, yeah, three blokes going to a pub. And then I thought, I don't have anything. I've got nothing. So I just extended. I went three. I say three. I mean, it's pretty four or five. Um, six, about ten, ten blokes. Anyway, I'm getting a few laughs, a few like, you know, and then I got ten blokes, ten, I say ten, twenty, it was quite about 30, about thirty blokes, about thirty blokes. Getting a few more laughs, and it started to say, and then I realised, oh, I'm onto something here. So I just, I just made up, like, this thing just turned into a shaggy dog story. Forty blokes, fifty blokes, a hundred, a couple of hundred blokes goes into a pub. Small town, small town goes into a pub, I say town. Uh, it's probably like a more of a conurbation, maybe a county. I think, it was, and it just went on and on and on from like three blokes to whole countries, empires, you know. And then, and then the punchline came to me in the moment, and I said, the first bloke goes up the bar and he says, "I'll get these." I said, "What an idiot!" You know, and it got a laugh, round of applause, and suddenly I thought, "This is what I should be doing." Did you then get off at that point, or did you go off on some other little? 
No, I, then I started to make up more stuff. I started to kind of improvise about what was around me on stage. I started to sort of ask suggestions from the audience. I'd made a song up with some, someone's name. It just, and then it was like in that moment, the whole course of what I was doing changed subtly but profoundly into what was this very scripted, quite traditional double act of banter into something a bit more that I wanted to do. Am I right that Chris, now your wife, but yes. then, then your girlfriend, had unbeknownst to you come down to Southend to support you? Yes, yes, that's right. She she said, well, good luck with the gig anyway. And so I went off to the gig and she got the train unbeknownst to her and she turned up at the gig. So when I came off stage to what was, I mean, it, the, the audience, I think even then, they recognised something had happened. Something had gone on. They'd seen someone's comedy come alive on stage. And I was on a bit of a high. And there she was. She was on st off stage waiting for me when I came off stage. And I was like, wow. And I said, you're here. And it was kind of, it's always become a bit of a, was, that was a sort of watershed moment. There is a different thing. You then have to perhaps work out what you're going to do on stage. I did then start to explore much more about improvised sections in the show. What if, what would have happened if, the, the whole sort of nativity sort of deconstructed that, you know, like they, they turn up late at the inn and there's no room, but what would have happened if they'd got there early? <laughs> you know, and someone had just checked out. Yeah, exactly. And oh yeah, we got, we got the suite, you know that. So things like that and ideas that then you can then unpack on stage almost, like you can improvise and riff around them. And that's what I realised, that's what I wanted to do more. And I did loads of that then. And that sort of opened up a kind of, it was like a door of creativity that I hadn't thought about before. Oh, there's food approaching us. Oh, hello. Gentlemen. Thank you very much. Our famous Trichis Toasty. Excellent. I think you'll agree that that's probably enough for two of us. Yes. Indeed. Wow. Thank you so much. Rocklets, Ogle Shield and Montgomery Cheddar. Thank you very much. My favourite three. Your favourite three cheeses. Yes. <laughs> now, I don't know if you're going to remember this. This isn't actually the first time we've met. No. We met in I... 1998, April. Was it in um, in a, a Two Bridges? It was in Two Bridges. Oh, oh, I was wondering whether you'd remember. Yeah. Um, I think you just finished It's Bill Bailey. That's right, yeah. And I was intrigued by your interest in Victor Borger. So, could you explain who Victor Borger was? Yeah. Victor Borger was, a, a, I think he was Danish-American, and um, he was a pianist and a comedian. And he was a performer who was hugely popular in, I think, the 60s, really, was it? Maybe even earlier. And uh, he had his own TV show in America, and, um, and then latterly in, in, in the UK. He would sort of, you know, make fun of um, pieces of music, he would have, do lots of physical comedy, he'd have like a piano stool that had a seat belt on it, and he goes, hey, what, I've got to strap myself in, and he would do all this. I suppose a reference point would be Eric Morecambe, you know, with Andre Previn, you know, but he, yeah. but that was his whole, whole act. But also the, the difference was he was a very accomplished musician. So. He was an extremely accomplished concert yeah. pianist. Yes, so, he, you know, he knew the music inside out, which kind of gave it another level, I suppose. But he had this kind of extremely universal appeal. I mean, I remember it was one of the few times when my whole family would sit down and watch. You'd started learning piano what? As a small kid, four mm. or five years old. Yeah. It's obvious to me you have a massive facility for it. Do you know where that comes from? When I started to play the piano, I realised that I was able to pick out tunes 
quite easily. I could hear a tune on the radio and I, I was like, oh, I'll play it on it. I knew what the pitch of the note was from the radio. So if somebody say, play, play a C or hum a C major and I would be able to hum it. You've got perfect, perfect pitch. pitch. And it's not that uncommon, actually. It's something which a lot of people have, but they don't know they have it because they, they don't play an instrument. That Didn't was... you want to say that wolves also... Wolves, no, that's right, wolves have it. All right, I'd, I'd love to know, how... <laughs> did they gather the wolves, hit notes on the piano and say, what is it? It's an apron. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> right. Now, I know this is a little bit of an unusual experiment. Yeah, well, I'd rather be chasing down somebody, prey on the tundra. Somebody in the yeah, the, the timber wolves. Somebody out there with like a xylophone. Now, come on. Now, pay attention, everyone. That's, Great that's five a, theory. That's a wolves. very narrow sort of Venn diagram, isn't it? People that like perfect pitch and people that are prepared to go <laughs> live with wolves. But apparently, different packs of wolves howl at different pitches. So the wolf in that pack will know its pack from the pitch of the howl. So, and they know, have to be able to recognise it. And they've that. got to be able to recognise it. And they've also got to be able to hit that note in order for the, 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 the pack to recognise them. You went and played piano in a bar, didn't you, on the Finchley Road? That's right. And who were the regulars at this and, bar? Well, the regulars, as I found out very soon, were, were the Black Sabbath. <laughs> With Ozzy? Ozzy, yeah. Ozzy turned up. He had a... German infantry helmets on, like an, like one of those sort of, and he had one of those on, and he had a big sort of army greatcoat. He looked completely out of it, as you'd imagine. I didn't get much sense out of him, but I'd spoke to the um, the drummer, and uh, the drummer was uh, was very very kind to me. He said he kept buying me drinks all night. He bought me this depth charge, which I don't know if you've ever had a depth charge. Um, isn't that cider with a a, a shot of something else dropped to the, the bottom? Yeah. Basically, it was a pint of lager with a schooner of Tia Maria in the bottom. <laughs> Which you, you can take the boys out of the West Midlands, but you can't take the That's West classy. Midlands. That's class. Now, give them a depth charge. <laughs> At this point, I need to explain that my wife is originally from Stourbridge. Oh. That's the only accent I can do. Yeah. It's a black country accent. Is it? I remember there was a comic that he was, I had a brilliant Birmingham accent, and he said, it's the great accent to complain in. Well, you know, that's the last we'll see of the sun today. <laughs> and it sort of, it makes sense. So yeah, that, that was a, I mean, I've never tried that again before or since, but it did the job, I tell you. But I just have a vivid memory of one of these things on the top of the piano. And I clearly must have been quite good because they kept me on. And then the, and the band liked it. They were going, hey, you're all right, just kidding. So they would put these drinks on, on the top of the, and I'd stagger out of there and I'd get paid cash. That's yours, you know. You, no, there's two bits. Ah, oh, well. Come on. Um, we have to say, the, the Whitmore toasting, I think, is... There's a reason people keep sending me photographs of the one they've ordered. Um, <laughs> what was it about performance? I like the reaction of the crowd. I like that buzz you get. It's very seductive. It's very addictive. I just tried to describe it once, and it was a bit like when you, you sort of inadvertently hold a live rail, you know, or a live wire. Like, I don't know if you've ever grabbed a, you know, one of those wires they put around cows, you know, like a sort of slightly electrified fence. You get a belt off I'm it always anyway. put off by the sign that says, warning electrified warning fence. Warning electrified fence. It's like getting punched in the crook of your arm. And uh, it's, it's, I wouldn't recommend, by the way, I'm not recommending people go and try it, but, you know, it's like suddenly doing comedy or performing or getting a reaction was a bit like that. You get this sort of, this buzz, like, whoa, what was that? And then, you let go and think, 
I don't know, how, how did that happen? It's almost like you don't quite know what happened, but you want it to happen again. You want that experience again. How, how quickly did the music side to it, the interpretation of a piece of music, mm. turning it in the light so it can be seen in another way, become a, a part of what you were doing? It wasn't until I did my own solo stand-up show in Edinburgh, the Fringe Festival, where I used a keyboard for the first time. I think that's where it really took off. There is something immediate about it, isn't there? Mm. Even if they've not quite got the gags. I watched six minutes you did on Conan's show, Ooh. Conan O'Brien in the States, mm. and it was because you were doing your show on Broadway. That's right. It looks to me like the first couple of minutes of that were incredibly uncomfortable. Yeah, but that was a real sort of, uh, again, another light bulb moment, like this connects with people. What's amazing about your music, if I may yeah. say so, is your enormously broad tastes. Yeah. In one interview you said that the soundtrack to your life would be Debussy, mm. but you love your death metal. Yeah. And you're, you know, Mongolian throat singing. Oh, and yes. Do you like a bit of Mongolian throat I love singing? a bit of Mongolian throat singing. Sometimes that's the only thing that will do. <laughs> That'll get you through a cold Saturday. Now, some of this, you know, like metal, the, the musicianship is incredibly complex and ambitious in a way that other kinds of music isn't. One of my favourite bands is this band uh, called uh, Mastodon. Yeah. It's, it's a marriage made in heaven, isn't it? It involves animals. <laughs> involves or, 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 and they're not mythical because they did exist. They did but, exist. But they're extinct. Yeah. Huge, lumbering, <laughs> extinct beasts. I mean, they barely have to play to get your attention. No. Straight away, I was like, yeah. They released a concept album based on Moby Dick. I mean, that's like right in my wheelhouse. It's called Leviathan. I mean, it's, it's brilliant. And it involves incredibly complex rhythms and harmony and guitar playing and vocal layers. And it's just, it's a, it's a work of genius. But equally, I love music that is something completely different and takes you away from our culture. Like Mongolian throat singing, what I love, you know, a Javanese gamelan. Because it, it doesn't start, doesn't end, it just sort of, happens and it goes round in long loops. Harmonically entirely different, isn't it? Yeah, it's right. And it's one of the reasons why um, I got involved with um, a charity that they encourage people in prisons to play gamelan. And it's for long-term prisoners, lifers. And it made perfect sense to me because... What's the charity called? Good Vibrations. But the idea is, is, is very sound and it may, this is what, to me, it's like the essence of why I love music. And that is that you can play the gamelan and you can get a good sound out of it, even if you don't have any musical training. So because it's on a pentatonic scale, so it's not in the traditional Western scale of a chromatic scale, you can just so bash away scale. on five notes with hammers on the, well, probably they don't give them hammers, maybe. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you know, Serial killer in cell seven, two hammers. Foam <laughs> beaters. And they just, and you can play in a group. So you sit round in a circle and there's lower, you know, sort of scales and higher scales and it makes a pleasing sound. And just that, you, you feel like you're part of something, you feel that you're relaxed, you feel like you've a sense of achievement because you're creating harmony with others. It's extraordinary. It's like uh, from something so odd and seemingly bizarre and random, like an Indonesian musical form, transplanted to a UK prison, somehow it gets these amazing effects. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, 
but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, nothing. No tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. No tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. When I interviewed you back in 98, and you were deeply suspicious of TV, actually, at that point. If you're a comic and you want to get a bigger crowd, you want to find a gig on television that doesn't revolve burning your material. So if you can be on a panel show, that's why they're so popular. You did a lot of them, but you have recently, in the past couple of years, I think it's fair to say, have said, no more. I mean, I don't know how many shows we did well, with Buzzcocks. Uh, yeah, Buzzcocks, you were a team captain. I did something like 120 shows, and then I did a, a bunch of other shows. and Did a lot I, of QI. And that was fun. I liked that because it was no prep. You just show up and talk rubbish, and uh, that <laughs> seems to be what you know television is. And then my old pal, Sean Locke, he persuaded me to come on um, Cats Does Countdown. Oh, and, on, uh, there's food arriving. Food? Yes. Well, I think we need to get this on the table before you talk about Sean. More that's food. a very important issue. Yeah. I thought the toasty was it, to be honest. No, you ordered a pie. That's pie. true, you did. And it's a proper pie. That is a proper pie. I, I, I always say that the definition of a pie is something you could pick up in one hand and throw across a room. Oh. Because if, it's in, a, if it's in a casserole, well, thank you. Thank you so much. That, that is... doesn't care. If it's just a pastry lid. No, that's beautiful. Look at that. Yeah. Oh, thank you so much. That's a, that's a proper pie. That is, isn't it? I mean, that looks like that's almost medieval. Well, normally I wouldn't, but yes, please. <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> so you're right, Sean Locke obviously was a, a captain on 8 Out of 10 Cats Do Countdown. Yeah. How did you meet Sean? I met Sean at a gig. I think it might have even been a gig down in Twickenham. There's a club there called the Bearcat. And we met and we just seemed to get on. We kind of hit it off. Had a similar sense of humour. You know, he ended up doing a lot of shows together. We wrote a show to go up to the Edinburgh Festival together. You know, we sort of became good pals, which lasted over 30 odd years. Were you still working together when he was diagnosed with cancer? We did a few cats during that time. Just to be clear, that's eight out of 10 eight cats do can yes. cat rather in any way. That's <laughs> right. Destroying neighborhood pets. No, that's right. This is a very good pie. This is a very good uh, cod with a pesto broth. Oh, also right. chicken and leek pie, isn't it? Chicken and leek pie, yeah. Excellent. Proper pie. It is. Do you still find yourself having come up with material and wanting to talk to Sean about it? Oh, yeah. And I think about things, I think I've come up with an idea and I think, oh, yeah, run it by him. Oh, no, I can't. A lot of the things that comics do is you find something funny, you send it round to everyone, you go. And do you? Yeah. I think, oh, I'd send this to, oh, no. But yeah, Sean, that's right. We, we used to sort of share a lot of stuff and. I guess one of the things that I miss most about him was that it was like a sounding board for yourself. You know, like when you know someone or someone, I should say, knows you yeah. inside out. 
That's a rare and a wonderful thing because they can keep you right, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Everybody needs a good editor. Yeah. Strictly. Yes. How many times were you asked prior to oh, actually I, saying yes? I sort of, at least four or five times over the years. What I objected to was the relentlessness of it. You would have to commit yeah. to 12 weeks, even yeah. if you were out in week three, you'd yeah. have to commit initially. I just thought, I'll never be able to commit to this amount of time. It's ridiculous. And then, of course, you know... Murderous pandemic comes yeah. along. <laughs> That's right, a once-in-a-generation <laughs> plague. Once-in-a-century. Once-in-a-century pandemic comes along. And, go, and, and right, was that then. really what you were thinking? And presumably, if the series starts in sort of September, that call comes, like... Mar in March, March, yeah. March, April, as That's the right. pandemic's hitting and your whole tour has been cancelled. Everything's gone. All my work stopped. This will make you laugh, perhaps. I was asked to be the face of Visit Britain in 2020. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I have to ask, pre or post the beginning of the pandemic? Yeah, I'm standing in Piccadilly Circus and all oh, there's two people in high-vis and masks on scuttling around me. It's like a scene from I Am Legend. Come! That gig is never going to happen, I don't think. Probably ever. Would you have done that? Yeah. I, know you, I know you were offered Asda for enormous amounts of money and yeah. when you said no, they doubled it and you still said no. No, I know. So then I was offered a global travel show. It was like Bill's World Odyssey or something. Again, that's not going to happen. So all of this work just was disappearing out the, out the door. All the live gigs, gradually, they all went like dominoes, they all disappeared. I tried doing Zoom gigs, online stuff, and now it's pretty grim. An intrusive question. Yeah, go on. At this point in your career with, you know, the live work and all of that, would I be entirely unfair in suggesting that financially, you could have just ridden out the pandemic not doing anything? Normally, I would say that is true. But in this case, money right. was tight. We have because everything of... else that you were planning to yeah. be your owner for the year had gone. That's right. So you budget for all of these things, sure. you know, and suddenly you realise, this is actually looking pretty bleak, you know? We have a sort of um, an animal rescue centre in, in, in our house, basically. How many have you got at the it. moment? 64 animals. About 64. Yeah, That's a very precise number I don't for an quite about. Know. Yeah, okay. <laughs> How many Most frogs? exotic? The most exotic. We've got some quite rare frogs. <laughs> where, do you, where do you rescue a, a rare frog from? Just in Hammersmith. <laughs> they come from um, airports. Oh, really? People try and smuggle this stuff. You get a call from Heathrow Terminal 4. Yeah, literally that. Oh, we've got a couple of frogs here, and oh, we've heard you, you go off from. We're basically like a sort of halfway house, a holding pen for the unwanted, the trafficked. And can I just be clear for anybody who thinks that you yeah. live in some rural area with a big plot of land, and mm. you live in West London? We live in Hammersmith, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We've got brilliant keeper, Kelly, who she used to work at London Zoo, and she looks after all the animals, and she's brilliant. And we have got some rarities, and one of the great things about it is that she writes these brilliant papers, right, about the animals that we've got, and they get contributed to the whole sort of, the general data set of all of the animals. So it's sort of, we're trying to kind of... But this doesn't mean you've got an overhead. We've got huge overheads, yeah. I mean, you know, I don't know what you know, frogs. Oh, Jesus, they, they need... God, they go through it. I'm sure. They, <laughs> they're what's high the, maintenance. What's the largest 
animal you've got. I mean, I know size isn't everything. Probably the Victorian crown pigeons. Right, there's their giant pigeons. Giant they're, pigeons? They're the biggest pigeons in the world. I mean, they're the size of a no, dodo. We... Because we're known in the whole sort of animal rescue community, then somebody will say, oh, Bill and Chris have got one. We've got a female here, needs a home. So we put Oh, now you're breeding crown yeah. pigeons. Yeah. Where do they come from? Well, you find them in Papua New Guinea and... Okay. And Hammersmith. Hammersmith. <laughs> they're sitting in the enclosure looking around going, where are we? What's that? Isn't that the, that's, we're under the Heathrow flypath. Was that part of the calculation then when Strictly comes calling? Well, partly, yes. Partly it's work. Yeah, sure. You know, I mean, work's work, you know. It, suddenly I just thought, if ever I'm going to do the show, now's the time to do it. I had no expectation. What, what, well, yeah, what was your expectation going in? Very low expectation. I mean, my, my dance skills are very much basically flailing. Enthusiastically, but no. Flailing enthusiastically. Flailing enthusiastically at any social event. And I just thought, I haven't, I've never done any choreography. I don't I mean, I don't, I've never taken dance classes. I don't even know what the hell I'm doing. So I might end up being the kind of novelty contestant. When you were um, paired with Oti, Mabuti, mm. who'd won the year before, did you take that as a sign that they didn't think you were going to go very far, oh, specifically yeah. because they weren't going to be aiming at the same professional Absolutely. winning two years in a row? That's right. You know, it's unprecedented. No professional has won it two years consecutively. I think they thought, well, Bill's a safe bet. <laughs> and I don't think anyone expected me to, to do well on it, no. Firstly, how was the experience of being part of it? I know you get spray-painted a lot, spray-tanned, yeah. um, and that you had to be... You know, tits, teeth and sequins. Definitely. Did you take all to that, that immediately? If I say I'm going to do something, I'm all in. Right. You're joining a show, it's a very popular show, it's a hugely popular show, it's like a well-oiled machine. You just have to kind of commit to it, immerse yourself in it, and that way you'll get the most out of it. And that's what I did from, from the very beginning. So was... at which point in the whole process did you think, actually, I'm not going out in week three. Yeah. I'm here. The second week, the first week was a bit of a sort of... Like, I don't know what the hell I was doing. Yeah, it was but a, you can't go out and week one. It's a blur. <laughs> but second week, the second week, we're suddenly like, I'm enjoying this. Then the Sugar Hill Gang. Oh, Rapper's Delight. Rapper's Delight. They loved what you did. Yeah, that was, that was hilarious. I mean, it becomes almost the stuff of cliche, but this show, it does reveal things about yourself that you didn't know. What and did it reveal to you? Things from my past came back. What sort and of things? When you mentioned Rapper's Delight, when I announced it, you know, they, they do this thing, they live announcement. What are you doing next week? Well, I'm doing, you know, hip, hop, the hip. A friend of mine from school I hadn't heard from her, she texted me and said, I have a vivid memory of you. You learnt the entire nine minute version and freestyled it at a party in the West Country in a barn, <laughs> drinking cider. And I was like, wow, that's why this song has such a. Because it's internalised. It's internalised. I sort of, suddenly I find myself, you know, dancing to it live on television in front of millions of people. It felt like this is a part of my own past. This is my youth coming back to sort of help me out here. Some people, it's, it's just too much. They can't cope with it, the pressure of it. They get the steps wrong. For me, it was about you step up to this challenge. I love a challenge, you know, anything that's new, I love a challenge. 
you realise, certainly about in terms of stamina as well, my God. I mean, Were you the fittest you'd been? The fittest? God, since, you know, P.E. <laughs> since music and movement. <laughs> yeah, that's right. When you're seven. Cutting to the end. You're voted by the, the Great British Public, yeah. number one. You win it. Yeah. How did it make you feel? <laughs> Not just the business of winning, but there were right. tens and tens of thousands of people who voted and said, Bill Bailey for the win. For the win, yeah. Well, it was it was, it was kind of overwhelming in a way um, because of the circumstances of the of the series and when it was going out. We were in, everyone was in lockdown. It was imbued with the greatest significance, and also because I was perceived as the underdog. It's like, how can Bill, Bill's doing well? Not only is he doing well, he can dance. He's do, he's doing it, and it sort of captured people's imagination. I think in a way that I I hadn't imagined. Because of the, the circumstances we were in, you didn't interact with the public, you had no idea whether it was popular or it's not. It's like being on the original Big Brother. It was. It was like a bubble. Start dancing at nine, train for 12 hours. I get home, I was just a sort of shell. My wife, who's a fantastic cook, would make this delicious meal. And I, while that was being done, I'd go and sit in the bath. And I'd sit in the bath for a bit and then I'd eat and then I'd go to bed. And I'd dip my toes maybe in the pond, cool my feet off, and then we do it all again the next day. And then, hang, hang on, was that a euphemism or do you have a pond? We do have a pond, oh, yes. Right. No, yeah. Well, the frogs are going to be somewhere, so. Yes. <laughs> We've got some koi. Yeah. And actually, when we were, we built the koi pond during the time of Strictly, and um, uh, a cat fell in it. A neighbour's cat went in it, and I went down to get the cat out. And I was so knackered from training, I couldn't get out. So who did they have to send down to get you out? I was stuck in this koi pond in a foot of water while my wife was hysterical with laughter. And I was cursing at her to help me out. She goes, not until I film it. <laughs> <laughs> but um, there's no doubt it's an amazing experience. It was unexpectedly joyous and life-affirming. And it was, I felt great. I'd learned a new skill. You know, you connect with people in a huge way. What's it done for you? There's a, there's a level of awareness and exposure that goes up exponentially by doing the show. Um, but also affection. And affection, yeah, definitely. I did some shows at the Royal Opera House in, last summer. Yeah, and I was doing my show, and, and there's a bit in it when I'm talking about the dance of the Red Bird of Paradise, of course, yeah, as, you, as you do. And uh, so what I did was I wrote a bit of music for this, and I did a bit of choreography for it. I said, yeah, I said, the Red Bird of Paradise has got a very specific dance. It dances every morning at dawn uh, to try and attract a mate. You know, and I said, imagine that, fellas. Every morning, you've got to do this. So I play the music, and I did this routine, and I finished it, and the audience were like, again! <laughs> <laughs> they wanted more of the dancing. They just wanted to see it again. So I just, just do the whole thing again. So and then I thought, oh, this is new. Hmm. It, it puts you into a sort of another realm I suppose you know people see you in mainstream entertainment rather than I don't I sort of fly under the radar most of the time one thing I have to ask you about Britain has not recently had a massive record at the Eurovision Song Contest oh. despite historically having a good record have you have you not offered yourself up as a songwriter for this I have I mean, are we talking seriously you've done this? seriously yeah a few years ago um, I wrote a song for Eurovision with a friend of mine, Kevin Eldon, who's a very fine... I know, Kevin Eldon, the actor. The actor. 
we always say Kevin Eldon, nay Robinson. <laughs> and um, well, he changed his name for yeah. Equity. Yeah. Okay. We wrote an eco anthem with a Dad's Army theme, and it was called "Put That Light Out, Mr. Hodges." And it was a beautiful song, but the BBC considered it to be too silly. I mean, how do you think it would have gone down with, let's say, the voting panel in Riga or Bratislava? You'd be surprised how many people have seen Dad's Army in the former Soviet <laughs> satellite states. <laughs> what was it that you think you were offering to Britain? Right, OK, if you want to get into the seriousness of it, oh, I, yeah. I'm a bit of an Eurovision nerd, only because I've watched it every year since I was a kid. I'm obsessed with it slightly. Every time I'm away, I'm abroad, whatever, I'm in any part of the world, I try and watch it. Because it shouldn't still be happening. <laughs> it's a ludicrous concept. It's a ludicrous load of nonsense that should in no way still be a thing. And the rules keep changing. With the fact Australia's now allowed to... It's Australia. Oh, just yeah. because they love it. <laughs> you can come in. Australia. Yeah, anyway. It's like ludicrous... Bollocks is what it is. And yet, it's still hugely popular. And the last Eurovision had the biggest TV audience ever. And the most number of viewers from the UK. So come on, something is doing something right. And what are we doing wrong? We're taking it too seriously and not seriously enough. At the same time, simultaneously. I know that sounds a bit mad, but we think, well, we should get a serious artist and we should get a record company to vet it and we should do that and we should, you know, no, 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 no. You should just celebrate the ludicrousness of Britishness and British culture and capture that, bottle it in some way and then enhance it. Put a rocket up it and it's got to be an A minor. It's got to be an A minor. Minor keys always win in Eurovision. Do they? Yeah. Statistically, where are you transposing to at the, at the end of the third D verse? D minor, A minor and G minor are, are punching way above their weight in Eurovision. If you look at all the winners over the years, if you can get G minor, D minor and A minor in, you're onto a winner. Don't mention the heart, don't mention that, anything like that. Those things don't Do you win. mean in a metaphorical sense or, or should be... Literally, a, a don't mention organs. the heart. No, don't mention the heart. <laughs> don't mention bodily organs. Well, you kidney, could, spleen. Spleen, nothing like that. Anything awful, don't mention that. You've got to talk about the sky. You've got to talk about holding someone's hand. That always wins. So I've written a Eurovision song I have in my current tour. And if you can sing it in another language, that's going to go down well. So I've written a song in French. It's called L'Oiseau et l'Enfant. Oui. And it's all about a bird that goes to this park. Tous les jours, l'oiseau, il vient au parc municipal. Pour rencontrer avec les autres oiseaux. Et tous les jours, il y a un enfant, un petit garçon. Il vient au parc pour donner du pain pour les oiseaux. L'oiseau a accepté le pain, il mangeait le pain, ils sont partis. Is it partly inspired by the enormous pigeons that you have yeah, in your partly. <laughs> They've got a look on their face like, we should be extinct. Yeah. Have, have you sung it to them? Yeah. They make a very, very low... French, French is one of the national languages of Papua New Guinea, isn't it? It is. Yeah, yeah that's right, yeah. yeah. How's that for regional knowledge? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. See how we're bringing this together. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think with the right elements, we could do really well. Well, if the, um, if the presiding powers responsible for Britain's entry to the Eurovision Song Contest are listening...
Mr. Bill Bailey is here to serve. I'm there. Yeah. Sign me up. I'm just curious what's next. I know, I know there's the tour, which you, you've had one postponed and one moved, and you're, you're oh. sort of touring now, aren't you? Mm. Hence, you're in Southend. Mm. What I loved about the Wallace doco, where I ate the bat, was the fact that it was a collaborative endeavour. And these are the things I think that where you create something that's perhaps even greater than the sum of its parts. Well, it did strike me, and if I'm wrong on this, you'll tell me, and I apologise if I'm wrong. Well, you're an immensely accomplished musician. You've written comedy songs. You've done that. There's no large piece. It may sound grandiose, but there's no Bill Bailey symphony. No. Or is there, and you just haven't got it out there? That's a good point, and it's something which I, I'm aware of, and I want to try and correct that. <laughs> you know, when I get through this year, which is I've got commitments, touring commitments here in Australia, that's where I'm aiming at. What I want to get out of this, the experience that I've had, the years of doing comedy, performing, and knowing what works is to create something like a, a musical maybe or a piece of music or something which is has a lasting uh, value because comedy is quite transitory you know it's quite ephemeral and this is saying you know that you're only as good as your last gig and it's very true you know you build a reputation that's fine but things that last things that kind of you can hand over to another generation those are quite rare they're harder to achieve. The proudest moments I've had as a father, as a parent, and not even that, as, a, as an artist, as a performer, as a writer, as a comedian, whatever you want to describe me or ascribe me as, was when my son, he's doing A-level biology, and he was doing a, a course, he was doing a section about evolution and genetics and, uh, and inherited characteristics. He said, look at this, and he had a, uh, some coursework for his A-level biology. And one of the aspects of the coursework was, one of the recommendations was, the entire, his entire group was, was told, watch Bill Bailey's Jungle Hero. Watch this program about Wallace, because here there's a very succinct and very accessible description of the nature of evolution and natural selection. I'm more proud of that than perhaps anything. You've once said that it's important to stop for lunch yeah. as part of the creative process. Yeah. So uh, I'm, I'm hoping that this lunch has aided that process. Very um, much so. There is uh, time for dessert if you'd like it, but for now, we'll get it ordered later if you've got room after a proper pie. Can I say, Bill Bailey, uh, thank you for letting me take you out to lunch. Thank you very much been an absolute joy. It's only been 24 years, so I'll see you, what, in 2046? 2046, yeah. yeah. Here, I'll drink to that. <laughs> I do look forward to meeting up with Bill in the future enormously. What a brilliant man. Um, and brand new shows have been added to Bill's current live tour, En Route to Normal, which run through until the end of May. Full information and tickets are available at billbailey.co.uk. That's B-I-L-L-B-A-I-L-E-Y.co.uk. And thank you so much to the folk at the Wigmore, which is based on Langham Place in London. If you loved the show, do please follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please... 
do share this with as many people as you can. Comment, rate us, give us five stars, why not? Uh, it all helps to spread the word so that we can bring you more of them. Out to Lunch is a something else in Jay Rayner production. The music was written, arranged and performed by me, Jay Rayner and Robert Rickenberg. The recording engineer was Josh Gibbs and the mix engineer John Scott. Assistant producers are Anya Das and Bethany Hocken. The producer is Selena Ream and the executive producer is Darby Doris. Next time, it's the comedian and actor you'll know from Ghost Shrill and Alan Partridge. It's Lolly Adafope. Are you basically yeah, telling man. us that Steve Buscemi isn't really that good? <laughs> is that what you're saying? Is that what, is that what we're good. It's not good. It's not good. It's, it's just not luck. good. He's not nice uh, either. Uh, <laughs>